buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, it seems Ukrainian counteroffensive is gaining some serious traction on the western Zaporizhia Oblast front, apparently breaching the Russian defences at several of their strongest points. Meanwhile, the Russians are having real problems dealing with Ukrainian artillery and are complaining once again of a lack of shells, something that President Putin will reportedly be asking North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to help him out with when he meets him in Russia soon. This is good news, of course, for the Ukrainian side, but it's counterbalanced by some rather negative developments. There's been another corruption scandal inside the army, and President Zelensky has announced the sacking of longtime Minister of Defense Oleksiy Reznikov, who did much to secure billions of dollars of Western military aid since the full-scale invasion in 2022. Now, Reznikov has not been personally implicated in the many corruption scandals that have rocked his ministry, but he does bear some collective responsibility. And the news of his sacking will, of course, provide ammunition for those on the American right who present Ukraine as an endemically corrupt state and strengthen the hand of Republican presidential hopefuls who want to abandon the Biden administration's pro-Kiev stance. We'll be looking at the current US pre-election landscape and discussing what that means for the future of the war. But first, uh, let's talk about events on the battlefield. We've just come from a briefing given by uh, Western officials. I have to say these are very senior Western officials. And they gave their assessment of what's happening on both sides. It was full of a very interesting nuance, not very strong on detail, but I thought there were lots and lots of signals being sent to us, you know, for dissemination via the media. What did you make of it, Saul? Well, it was mixed messages, really, wasn't it, Patrick? It was curious. I mean, one of the first things, as you say, the very senior Western official said to us is that we need to, and of course, he's really referring chiefly to the press, lift up the conversation. And by that, of course, he means that, you know, there's been a tendency recently, Patrick, us included, to look at the incremental battlefield gains. And we'll talk more about that in the pod later. But what he's really uh, uh, suggesting is we need to see the big picture. And the big picture is that Ukraine, certainly if you go back as far as March 2022, 
has been winning this war and Russia's been losing it. He got into a bit more detail, of course, about talking about some of the Russian losses, up to 270,000 total casualties, 4,000 armoured fighting vehicles, the, you know, the gradual degradation of the Russian ability to fight, whereas, on the other hand, Ukraine's ability to fight, of course, has been increased with Western military aid. But we didn't really get a sense, which is what I was hoping for, Patrick, to hear their opinion on these recent battlefield gains. They were trying to move away from looking at the battlefield itself. Did you get that sense? Yeah, very much so. I think I was getting two things from it. One is very much dampening down expectations of a big breakthrough like we saw last September. And secondly, more or less saying on the kind of political angle, you know, when they're talking, emphasizing, uh, you know, what the positives were for Ukraine thus far in the war, uh, talking about taking back big chunks of the territory that they lost at the outset of the of the Russian invasion. And, you know, the message I was getting was, look, take the win, you know, you're doing pretty well, laying the ground for a scenario early next year, perhaps when it's clear that there aren't going to be any more battlefield gains and it's time to start talking. Is that how you read it? I, I have to say, Patrick, I, I think they would be rather disappointed to to think that you took that out of it. Although, of course, if you did, it, it's poor messaging on their part. My take on it is slightly different. I, I think they were very much saying the West is in this for the long haul. We're going to support them as and when they need that support. But they also emphasize that the support is going to be chiefly ammunition and and really repairing or augmenting and supporting what they've already got rather than lots of new kits, which is slightly alarming, particularly when you consider that the first Challenger tank has recently been lost on the battlefield. And there was a direct question, will it be replaced? And the answer was no. So that is a little bit concerning, given that we've probably got, well, we definitely have plenty of uh, Challenger tanks that we could add to that original 14. I think the broader picture, as I say, was we're in it for the long haul. We're going to keep supporting them, but we need to dampen down this idea. And someone asked a specific question about this, that if Ukraine doesn't make serious gains in its current counteroffensive, then the game is really up and Russia is going to begin to turn the tables next year. But of course, they're leaving all options on the table. Uh, And the big one, Patrick, which you've picked up on, but I think the nuance was in the way I saw it slightly different, is that in the end, it's up for Ukraine to decide when it's going to go to the negotiating table. Yeah, I mean, uh, the official did keep talking about the bigger picture, looking at the bigger picture. And um, the way I see it, uh, that's kind of chiming uh, with a general kind of Western adjustment to expectations, saying that you know this could go on for a hell of a long time, so don't get your hopes up that there's going to be a a sudden uh, Russian collapse. But having said that, you know the, the overall picture was that Russia is getting steadily weaker and weaker, but of course um, it's got a lot of residual strength nonetheless. So uh, yeah, I think the general picture is yes, progress is being made but perhaps not to the extent that it's going to change the overall or rather the bigger strategic picture. Um, Let's get down to the battlefield. Once again, you know, a lot of interesting fighting going on about around uh, Robertinia. And there's a bit of dispute about what actually the the, uh, Ukrainians are achieving there. They're achieving something, but is this a breakthrough of the deepest and most dangerous part of the Russian defences in terms of how much it's going to cost the uh, Ukrainians to breach them. The Ukrainians are sort of telling us that the, this really is, you know, the, the, the toughest 
part of the line to crack. And once they get through that, the defences will get steadily weaker. There isn't a continuous line after this line that they're, they're concentrating on about around Robertinia. And that if they can get around that, then this uh, move from what the military call dismounted fighting into kind of, uh, you know, the tanks sweeping in through the breaches and uh, taking the enemy from behind becomes a possibility. There's also interesting developments on the air front, aren't there, Saul? Yeah, there are. I mean, what what's uh, we're going to talk a little bit actually um, in part two about the capabilities of the F sixteen and what it can do, not just uh, in close air support and basic air support for other air assets, but also in suppressing fire from the ground, which of course is relatively effective for the Russians at the moment. But the plan at the as part of the degrading of their ability to fight, they've been trying to knock out these air defense systems. Uh, so that eventually they'll be able to deploy their relatively limited at the moment and precious air assets, uh, fast jets and helicopters, and ultimately F-16s as well. And they've been having a certain amount of success in all of that. And just to go back to the battlefield games for a second, I mean, you mentioned uh, Robertinier, uh, Patrick. That, if you again, if you look at the map, that that position there, the deep wedge that's been driven into Russian lines has expanded. And a little bit of detail from uh, one of the Russian sources, in fact, the general in command in that area in in Zaporizhia has basically said that the and how he knows this exactly I don't know but it would give you a sense of of the Ukrainian belief in terms of the strength of the defenses they've gone through they reckon that the Russians put 60% of their defensive efforts into building this line which they are now through in this big wedge wedge position so Patrick you talked about the defenses getting weaker they certainly think they will be and also to return to the briefing for a second they acknowledged that the advance by the Ukrainians had been much slower than they'd expected but they had faced you know very difficult defenses which they were now getting through mainly by uh, you mentioned it patrick dismounted action which basically means infantry on the ground but there is a possibility that a lot of the assets that they've got both in terms of tanks and armored vehicles will be useful now because they are through these toughest defenses so we're gonna have to wait and see but it does seem that advances have been made particularly in the last couple of weeks that may well be significant yeah, the um, the official said, talking to uh, colleagues, that you know, the army experts call this a PhD land warfare, tackling these types of defences. And uh, one thing the Russians are good at, we know, is is preparing these sort of classic defensive lines. So any significant progress is going to be very slow and very costly. Now let's move away from the battlefield to the political front. And I must say that news about... Uh, Resnikov being fired is quite disheartening, isn't it, Saul? I mean, when we were there a couple of weeks back, the picture we were getting was that progress is being made in the fight against corruption. There's some way to go, obviously. But there sure is, isn't there? I mean, you know, we've already just had these mass sackings of regional recruitment chiefs, apparently, because they were taking backhanders to exempt rich young men from doing their military service. Now, this latest one concerns a scam to pay inflated prices for military uniforms. And there was another procurement scandal not long ago involving catering contracts. And we're not talking about peanuts here. This is a huge sum of money, 278 million pounds in the case of the catering scandal. And, uh, you know, Resnikov's been around for a long time. He's been there since well before the start of the war. Now, he's not being accused personally of profiting from all this, but he's presiding over a system that's still 
clearly pretty rotten, isn't it? I mean, if the Ukrainian MOD hasn't got clean hands, who has? Yeah, I mean, we'd like to think that everything was rosy in the garden, but they they had a long way to go. And I think it's important to keep this in perspective. I mean, the exposure of this corruption is, in my view, an indication that Ukrainians really are determined to keep up their acts. And Reznikov, you could say, given that he hasn't had any personal charges against him, as you pointed out, Patrick, has, to a certain extent, been forced to carry the can for the failure of others. And, and before we leave Reznikov, we should also mention that he was a close ally of our much-admired former Minister of Defence, Ben Wallace, and that the two worked closely together at the start of the full-scale invasion to make sure that Ukraine had the military kit it needed to survive. And Reznikov's predecessor has actually even gone to tell Reuters that his work saved the country because he was the owner of the process of arranging the shipments of weapons and so on. So we should just, you know, before we cast Reznikov to the dustbin of history, we should acknowledge the good stuff that he did do, albeit uh, he was presiding over a department, which, as you say, Patrick, has a long way to go before it deals with corruption. Yeah, I think it's, you know, Reznikov, you're right, I think he is carrying the cannon. Indeed, there's talk of him being appointed uh, the uh, next ambassador to London, which would suggest that uh, Zelensky still has uh, faith in him, you know, putting him in a key post like that with a key ally. But the sad truth is, Saul, isn't it, that this does play into the hands of those in the US who are pressing for a swift end to the war and, um, you know, leveraging basically Washington's support for Ukraine uh, to force Zelensky to the negotiating table, as I was referencing earlier. Now, of course, the number one in all this is Donald Trump, uh, who's on the record as saying that if he was president, he'd bring the war to an end in 24 hours. How is he going to do that? Well, uh, of course, Trump presents himself as the master of the deal. And the one he's got in mind for Ukraine would be to tell Zelensky, and I'm quoting here, no more weapons, make a deal. And the message to Putin would be, if you don't make a deal, we're going to give them, i.e. the Ukrainians, a lot more than they've ever got. Now, at that point, both men would see the light and sit down to negotiate a land for peace deal. Yes. And of course, uh, just adding to that bad news, uh, we should say that the we should say that Trump's rival for the Republican nomination is saying something very similar. And this is Vivek Ramaswamy, who's an ultra-libertarian with some alarming views if you're Ukrainian. He's on the record, for example, as favoring major concessions to Russia, ending US military aid and excluding Ukraine from NATO, and also allowing Russia to retain land it's stolen in exchange for an agreement to end its alliance with China, which in his eyes and a lot of Americans' eyes is America's real enemy. And there's another thing. He's called President Zelensky a bully. Now, Ramaswamy almost certainly won't win, but there's a lot of speculation that Trump may well pick him as his running mate. Yeah, of course, no one knows who's going to win the presidential election, but it's got to be said that support for the war in the US is far from fervent, at least if you believe a poll from CNN published uh, in the last few days, which says that a majority of Americans, 55%, oppose any further military aid to Ukraine. Now, the Biden administration's vocal support has been strong, remains strong, but it's still linking weapon supply to a diplomatic outcome. And the mantra has been, we fight on the battlefield in order to win strength at the negotiating table. So, you know, again, it's a sort of land for peace proposal they've got in, in mind at some point. But I think, uh, you know, in Europe, it, Europe's holding up much better. Is that There are a few little blips here and there in Germany with the far-right AFD 
is pretty uh, well, it's very strongly opposed to the war. But I think down the line, Ukrainians can take uh, some comfort from the fact that uh, European support remains pretty solid. Yes. And we have to remember that in America, Trump's message of disengagement from foreign entanglements does, unfortunately, get a receptive audience. And it's hardly surprising when you consider what's happened over the last couple of decades that America was continuously at war after 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the outcomes in both have been pretty dire. Biden's brand of old-fashioned US idealism, the world's policeman delivering enlightenment, is pretty 20th century in a younger generation's eyes. Think of how thoughtful and educated young Britons regard the, the Victorian empire, for example. But I think all this emphasizes the point that time is pressing um, and the window for a decisive Ukrainian victory is getting narrower and narrower. Having said that, I was heartened to see a quote from um, Zelensky's advisor, Mikhailo Podolyak, a couple of days ago. He's not predicting exactly, but he's sort of holding up the hope that conditions are ripe for a breakthrough and that, quotes, everything will end quickly and instantly, just as it began. Well, that would be great, wouldn't it? You know, we, we're not holding our breaths on this, but we also, I, well, certainly I'm getting a sense, Patrick, for the mood music coming from the Ukrainians, given the advances they're making on the battlefield and the degradation of Russia's ability to fight, it is indicating that there will be some uh, tangible results before too long. So let's keep our finger that Podolyak is, is right about that uh, and that there may be some change because, as we just pointed out, the long-term diplomatic and political outlook for Ukraine is not quite as rosy. And we should also mention that Putin's upcoming meeting with Kim Jong-un uh, to seek weapons is not exactly a sign of strength, is it? I mean, you know, going cap in hand, frankly, to the North Koreans, uh, one of the great pariah states of the world, and asking for some of their kits. And how effective that kit is, is another matter. But just going there in the first place and asking for it is not a great look. Uh, the meeting was apparently brokered by Shoigu, the defense secretary, and may take place in Vladivostok, though Kim's intense paranoia means that details will remain scarce until it actually happens. Yeah, he's got quite a lot to be paranoid about, hasn't he, Saul? Um, but another thing that I picked up, um, which again is, is hardly a, a sign of confidence, is that um, Putin made a speech the other day, which is clearly not designed to prepare the Russian public for a swift victory. This was on September the 5th, and he was evoking the memory of, of uh, great Soviet military victories during the Second World War, turning points at Stalingrad and Kursk, uh, recapturing the Caucasus and the Donbass, etc. So, you know, again, this is sort of really kind of giving up on the lie that this was a special military operation, and he's more or less telling them, actually, no, it is a war, and it's not a war that's going to be won anytime soon. Now, just to go back to whatever's being said in America about support for Ukraine, you know, our experience from all the many messages we get, emails to the podcast, is that popular public support is still very, very strong for Ukraine. We'll just read out one from um, Jeffrey Hartman, who says, hello, gents, I'm an avid listener to your brilliant podcast. Thank you, Jeffrey. And I want to thank you for your work and coverage of the war in Ukraine. Now, Jeffrey worked as a, served rather, as a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine way back at the beginning of the century, 2002 to 2004. And in March 2022, he writes, I founded Ukrainian Action, a volunteer-run UK-registered charity that has driven 41 humanitarian aid convoys to Ukraine and donated over 200 vehicles. 
Now, before um, he did this, Jeffrey was a um, trader, commodities trader in London, and he's married to a Ukrainian lady. So well done, Jeffrey. Uh, you can find out more on the Ukrainian Action website. Okay, that's enough for now. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering listeners' questions and also reading out a fascinating email from one of our listeners giving us important info on what the F-16 is actually able to do. Welcome back. Well, before we go to listeners' questions, I just wanted to read out some really fascinating information from Martin Boer in California. Now, first of all, uh, Martin says to us, thank you for inspiring me to make a personal contribution to support Ukraine. He's about to fly off to Europe, purchase a truck in Munich and drive it to Lviv, where he'll be turning it over to Ivan with Cars for Ukraine, which he found as a result of our podcast. So well done on all of that, Martin. But he goes on to say in his message that he's a prior uh, US Army field artillery officer and trained in the early 1990s to fight the Russians. Now, that's his area of expertise, but he knows an awful lot too about the impact that F-16s and other, as he puts it, modern Western multi-role aircraft can make in the Ukrainian war. Now, there are three basic missions, he says, for these type of aircraft, and they fall into combat air patrol. This involves flying high and fast, well back from the front, both to give maximum range to their radars and the best possible energy conditions for their missiles. The main purpose of this would be a deterrent effect, pushing back Russian CAP patrols, that's combat air patrols, and enabling Ukrainian fixed and rotary wing aircraft to be more aggressive in flying combat air support missions close to the line of contact. So that's the first thing. Second thing it can do, close air support, CAS. This is the precision application of airborne ordnance, guided missiles, etc. This is hard, precise, and very dangerous work as it is done near friendly troops, hence close air support where the risk of getting shot down by either side is high. Uh, friendly fire, as he points out there, isn't very friendly. And the third uh, element, which is also very interesting, is suppression of enemy air defences. The F-16, Martin points out, can carry AGM-88 Harm missiles, which is designed to seek out and attack Russian radar air defence systems, such as the S-400 and the Pantsir, while striking such systems is ideal, even the threat of this can cause enemy systems to shut down. And he goes on to say, and this is really the summary, just having F-16s in the air over Ukraine and potentially armed for any of these missions will force the Russians to factor this into their calculus. This reduction in their freedom of action and the increased caution forced on Russian commanders, especially of Russian cap fighters and CAS helicopters, can have a tangible positive effect on Ukrainian operations even if these F-16s never fire a shot. Okay, well, we're on to the questions. One from Thomas Inman here, who says, in response to Ukraine's drives the Azov Sea, what's the likelihood that further commitment of Russian forces will result in protest within Russia? Well, we don't hear much about protest anymore, do we, Saul? Um, I haven't heard of one since a year ago. I think the last significant one was way back in September 22. I suppose the obvious reason for that is the sort of, well, one of the obvious reasons for it is that the kind of people you would expect to protest, a lot of them have gone. Uh, young people, people looking to the future, 300,000 have at least have, uh, have already departed Russia voting with their feet. All the um, public figures, you know, entertainers, sports people, etc., writers, who 
wanted to say something about it, who have raised their voices. They've already spoken out against the war. They've done their bit and usually suffered pretty negative consequences as a result. So I don't really um, foresee any new wave of dissent, either in terms of people getting out in the street or people speaking out uh, in any significant way. But so I, you know, I don't think the mass is necessarily going to play a big part in in overthrowing Putin if that ever comes to pass. And we used to speculate, didn't we, on the podcast that um, you know oligarchs, the oligarchs, people with a huge stake in Russia, uh, might be the ones to start sort of um, the first serious rumblings. Now, the other day I read a fascinating interview in the Lunch with the FT feature and the Financial Times on the Saturday Financial Times. Now, this is with Andrei Melnichenko, who's apparently Russia's richest man. He made his fortune in coal and fertilizer. He's living in Dubai uh, since the start of the war because um, he couldn't any longer stay in Switzerland where he'd been residing. And that, uh, of course, is a result of EU sanctions against him. Now, this was extremely cautious in this interview. It wasn't prepared to blame Putin for the war or condemn Russian strikes on civilian targets or anything like that. But he did say a few interesting things. Now, one was that Putin's fate would be decided by the war rather than by internal conflicts. Well, we'd certainly all agree with the, with the first part of that, that you know, his, his fate is hinged on, on the outcome. But it was good to hear it from an insider. Now, he was saying the longer it goes on, the worse it will get for him, Putin. And I, he, I'm quoting here. He says, there's a limit to how long propaganda can rally people for destruction. People get tired of it and they want to move on. Now, he also suggested that the Prigozhin story signaled more chaos and infighting amongst the country's elite uh, he said it was going to be like gladiators fighting in the Colosseum. Now, this echoed something I'd heard from um, Ukrainian presidential advisor Mikhailo Podolyak, who we mentioned earlier. Now, he said about the Prigozhin affair that it was the start of a, quote, time of troubles, which far from demonstrating a tightening of Putin's grip on events showed he was losing control, which I think is pretty much how we read it, isn't it, So. Yeah, I mean, we're not expecting a, a mass uprising, frankly, Patrick, are we? I mean, having said that, you know, the likelihood that as the body bags continue to go back to Russia, or indeed, maybe they don't always go back, uh, people just hear no more about their loved ones, that there will be some, you know, popular protests in these outlying regions. We, we're having no really strong indication of that yet. But I think much more likely, as we speculated before, is that the inner circle, the people who have the most to lose, frankly, from the degradation of, of Russia's economic and military position in the world will say enough's enough sooner or later but um you know as we've also pointed out it is quite difficult to to uh, remove dictators from their positions of power because they're su surrounded by many many layers of security so we'll have to see what that how that one turns out question from graham king how serious for ukraine is a possible arms sale between russia and north korea well, uh, my feeling is not hugely serious. I mean, what seems to have been happening already is that North Korea's uh, supply to Russia has mainly been in the area of artillery ammunition. And no doubt they will want more of that because they are certainly lacking in it. And Patrick, you already pointed that out. But I suspect they're also trying to get their hands on some ballistic weapons. We mentioned on the podcast last week that Russia's stockpiles have been replenished to a certain extent. But at the same time, they didn't really have enough long range weapons to launched the sort of campaign that they did last winter. So it's there's no question that more missiles from North Korea would be 
helpful to Russia. How good their kit is is another matter. Okay, we've got a question here from Canada, Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Mayer. He says, thanks again for the fantastic podcast. News of the war is starting to fade from Canadian news channels, so your updates are increasingly important. Well, his question is, I'd be interested in your comments on a thought I had. Given that we know the fall weather, that's the autumn weather, is coming, and it's possible that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has been timed to reach its culminating point just prior to the weather turning. This would prevent a counteroffensive at the strategic level by the Russians, as these take significant time to prepare. So the question is, has there been clever timing involved, Patrick? What do you think? We just on that weather. Do you remember back in the spring? It's the Rasputitsa. Rasputitsa. This word we we were banding about quite a lot, which means the the kind of um, it means literally no road. The road because of the thaw, the roads are impassable because they're basically seas of mud. Um, but I think in the winter, the autumn, it's not. It's, I don't think it it goes from wet to uh, frozen. I think it sort of moves fairly rapidly from. You know, balmy autumn weather. My recollection of that part of the world, Balkans, the weather's not dissimilar, is it's you have a very nice autumn and suddenly it's winter. So I, I think there's a bigger point about the weather. I think any military commander or strategist planning their campaign on the basis of the weather should tread extremely cautiously. Um, I'm just thinking back to uh, June 1944, you know, D Day, everyone in all the German troops along the Atlantic and, and rather more so the Channel Coast expecting an invasion. It's, gonna, it's got to happen soon. But um, the Luftwaffe meteorological experts in Paris were telling everyone there's going to be two weeks of stormy weather coming in which it would be virtually impossible to, uh, to launch an invasion across the Channel. So everyone took off. Rommel went back to celebrate his wife's birthday a lot of senior staff went off to uh, a kind of conference in Rennes, which I think was more of a jolly than a than a serious sort of military uh, gathering. And of course, um, meanwhile, back in UK, Group Captain James Stagg, the uh, RAF chief meteorologist, uh, did a much better job telling Eisenhower uh, was all for postponing uh, the the invasion when it seemed that the weather was going to be very bad on on the fourth fifth June. But Stagg said, "No, no, it's it's going to trust me." It's going to get better, and if you delay, who knows what will happen. So on Stagg's word, Eisenhower pressed the button. The invasion went ahead on June the 6th with the results we all know. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, weather forecasting was a lot less predictable or less um, accurate back in those days, but it's still not uh, totally to be relied upon. So, um, yeah, I think uh, to get to a rather long-winded answer to your talk question, but I, I very much doubt that the Ukrainians are actually – gambling everything on weather conditions that are ultimately unpredictable. No, and there's also some suggestion, Patrick, we'll remember it from last year, that actually operations can go on a lot later in the year uh, than some people might imagine. I mean, if the ground firms up, of course, if the ground freezes, even snow, those aren't impossible conditions for a modern army to fight in. So it may be actually that the Ukrainians are calculating that the autumn campaigning season is going to extend on into winter. We will see. Well, we've got an interesting bit of information from Rob Buckingham uh, in Canada. So this is another a Canadian, ex-infantryman in the Canadian Army. 
And he's responding to a question asked last week about the relevance of NATO training. Now, there has been, of course, some criticism of NATO training and the implication that it's not ideally suited for the Ukrainians and the type of war they've got to fight. But Rob has this to say, which is very interesting. I taught at the infantry school here in Canada, and the most important NATO universal principle that is trained is mission command. Enable the lowest level of leadership to make independent decisions within the guidelines of their commander's intent. From friends of mine who have been training the UA, that's the Army of Ukraine, the training for their average soldier, NCO and junior officer is mainly focused on section and platoon level tactics, basically how to fight a 10-man infantry section and squad offensively and defensively within a platoon and company context. In other words, you know, kind of really basic stuff for the ordinary infantryman. It's an NCO's fight, says Rob, in the trench warfare we are seeing in Ukraine. And I very much believe these tactics being taught are applicable. So thanks for that, Rob. Yeah, you can see it, actually. I mean, there's endless um, videos uh, you can get up on on YouTube of these little fights, you know, these trench fights. And it's very much what you're talking about, Rob. You know, it's it's sort of six to ten men. They obviously know each other very well. They trust each other. They're answering shouted commands. They're moving forward in you know, a very small sort of incremental jumping into a trench, moving it along it, chucking some grenades. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's really... Uh, that basic and if it's if you're making those kind of decisions you have that confidence between yourselves and in your commander that sort of translates upwards to as you say platoon level company level um but at this stage of the game i, I think we're still dealing with very very small numbers i mean I, I haven't seen anything that looks like even a company scale operation in these videos Okay, Jeff Brewer from San Diego uh, says, love the podcast, especially the interviews and reports of life in Ukraine. He's just read an article and he gives us the link to the article. uh, And it, as Jeff says, blew his mind. Cardboard drones from Australia, nearly undetectable by radar and semi-autonomous. What is warfare coming to, uh, asked Jeff. And it is fascinating, isn't it, Patrick, that the uh, Ukrainians seem to be using these incredibly cheap, flat-packed Australian-built uh, drones that uh, just cost a couple of thousand dollars each. And yet, if the reports are accurate, were actually used to knock out those five modern Russian fighter jets in the airbase near Kursk, which of course is inside Russia's border. So extraordinary if they're really having some effect with with this pretty basic kit. Yeah, that's amazing sort of uh, cost uh, effect uh, disparity, isn't it? These things cost a couple of thousand bucks and god knows what a what a jet costs then um, they're clearly delivering uh, value for money got one here from dave who says we sing a lot about fighting the tactics and the politics the hardware and the statistics but what myths are the ukrainians turning to and creating themselves to sustain themselves in the war and he goes back and talks about the second world war how popular culture was incredibly important in actually maintaining social cohesion. And that's absolutely right, isn't it? I've done a bit of research on this, um, Saul. I don't know if you have, but some things are what you'd expect, really, that all the entertainment community, if you want to call it that, has sort of rallied around and um, they are using, you know, folk themes, melodies, stuff that be familiar uh, to Ukrainians and sort of employing them really in the in the service of supporting the war, you know, rap tunes and all the rest of it, you know, old folk tunes being being turned into into rap. Um, but there was I came across one 
song, which I suppose is um, the Ukrainian's answer to the White Cliffs of Dover, which is, of course, sung by the great forces sweetheart Vera Lynn. Now, this one's, um, it's a brilliant song. It's called Bayraktar, written by a young soldier. It's very, very catchy. You can see this brilliant video of it on YouTube with a bunch of soldiers performing it. It's very funny, mocking the Russians and, of course, celebrating the destructive power of the Bayraktar combat drone that's done so much damage to the Russian forces. I don't know what Dame Vera would have made of it. She was a game old bird when he died um, a couple of years back, aged 103. I think somehow that she probably would have approved. All right, that's all we have time for. Do join us next Wednesday when you'll hear more of our trip to Ukraine. And of course, Friday when we'll be analysing the latest news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.